this book is perhaps the most devastating look at two characters just obliterating each other. Um, it is immense emotional violence just yeah. permeates this book. Did you have the same thought like Gillian Flynn, who hurt you? Like, were you thinking <laughs> that? Because <laughs> I was, I was like, you're going to the depths of your soul, I feel, for some of this stuff. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to say that she's gone through similar situations, but you could see extrapolating from like an awful relationship and yeah. extrapolating something like this out of that. Welcome, friends, to episode 174 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Gillian Flynn's 2012 thriller novel, Gone Girl. All right, I am brimming with opinions. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you about this, James. Uh, but I do want to establish some ground rules here at the start of the episode. I do think we're going to hold spoilers until after we get our general thoughts out after we talk about the the writer a little bit and talk about her process um because there is like a lot there's massive spoilers in the story and i think it is possible that people are going to be checking out this episode with no prior knowledge wondering is this a book i should read so just for a little bit at the start i want to i want to speak to those in particular um what did you think of this book in general i mean i i first reaction just i love it um it was awesome i really enjoyed the experience i don't i don't feel like i read a lot of like mystery novels or haven't historically read a ton of mystery novels mm -hmm. and i would say this is sort of a mystery i don't want to i don't want to spoil anything but it's like a mystery yeah <laughs> so, no uh, i mean it's it's with, considered with like, elements of it's considered crime it's considered mystery thriller psychological like it, there's a lot of genre pinnings you can put on this literary yeah and and reading something from gillian flynn i you know immediately was thinking about sharp objects when we when we started this book and maybe it's because i'm not super steeped in this in this genre but it feels to me like Gillian Flynn has like created a genre, a genre to herself within sort of like a subsection of of these types of stories. It's like very dark, very atmospheric, unique characters that that aren't don't really fit an archetype of what you would, I guess, in my opinion, consider to be in one a story like this. They tend to be very. Uh, it tends to go there, is what I mean to say. Like they they she swings for the fences, and a lot of these characters, you're like trying to buy into the good things in the character you're trying to see like how you feel about a character and then your feelings might switch on a dime and and it was just it's a fun journey and i you know i'd seen the film so i kind of knew what to expect but i didn't remember all the specific details um but yeah overall just a just a really really fun story and i blew through it it was it was just a great read that makes me happy to hear uh i am in, in love with this novel i i it adored sharp objects. I, I, I remember just loving that coverage and, and saying, I really wanted to read more by her and she's two for two now for sure for me. Cause this, this was fantastic as to what you're saying about her kind of creating her own genre. I don't know, but definitely she's, she's got her own voice that I think is extremely d distinct. And that voice, I think she uses to write extremely believable characters especially the women that are often multi-dimensional far beyond the 
sort of intrinsically good women characters that we see so often in fiction. And she's talked about how that's one of her goals is to is to show women as being capable of all sorts of things. And there can be darkness there. And, and, you know, and a lot of authors, I think, shy away from that. And, you know, I I just love that part of her writing. Um, I think it's fantastic. And yeah, I think she's one of my favorite writers right now. Um, And she's only got three novels out. Dark was it Dark Places? I think it's the only other one we haven't read. Um, and she's done some TV work, you know, done some writing on that Utopia show came out, um, which I didn't see, but I should check out because I just love her work. So um, I'm excited, and I I hope she has another novel coming out soon because I'll be excited to see what happens with it. Like it's going to get adapted. I mean, look at the track record for three for three on those. Um, yeah. Just incredible. I think you're hitting on what I was talking about by saying like specifically like very complex, very real characters. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that like not, I don't like any of the characters mm. in the story, but I love this story, yeah. if that makes sense. Like all yeah. these characters are, are awful, but the, it creates- such, Yeah, the deeply flawed, just, yeah. So it creates such drama and tension and the, the things that, that Gillian Flynn is able to come up with for these characters to have go through their minds. Um, and some of the, I mean, some of the things the characters are saying ring very true. But then they're also, and so you're like, oh yeah, I understand where you're coming from. But then they do something outlandish and you're like, holy shit, like I'm not on board with this. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting this. Yeah. So I'm not going to give away any of the twists or anything, but I, I do want to just lay it out a little bit as a pitch to like, why, why would someone want to read this book? Should they be interested? This book is perhaps the most devastating look at two characters just obliterating each other. Um, it is immense emotional violence just yeah. permeates this book did you have the same thought like gillian flynn who hurt you like were you thinking <laughs> that because <laughs> i was i was like you're going to the depths of your soul i feel for some of this stuff yeah. and i you know i don't want to say that she's gone through similar situations but you could see extrapolating from like an awful relationship and yeah. extrapolating something like this out of that there is probably some truth to that but also just the ability to you know imagine and empathize with people who are in these situations and um, she writes Nick Dunn incredibly well. And I was seeing, uh, some people asking her questions about it. And she said that she like really identified with him. And, um, I, I was really impressed with the, um, empathy she shows for every character in my opinion. Like they're all, sh- it, it all feels like pieces of her when you're reading them. It, and no one character to me stood out as like, oh, this is nothing like Gillian Flynn. This is a complete fabrication. They all felt like little pieces of her like writer soul um, just being bared for us. And um, the more I looked into it, the more it's like a lot of the stuff in here is very personal to her. And she's got a lot of her own personal history wrapped up in it. Um, and so I think, I think this is one of those situations where, you know, we're seeing a writer who is like bleeding on the page and, and wow. that's that's really tough to do. And I mean, I think Sharp Objects is another example of that from what we saw. It's like, you know, they p- people talk about this in, in writing circles a lot about like being emotionally honest and and writing not only what you know, but um, I was just at a I was just at a retreat and uh, Daryl Gregory gave a gave like a presentation. He was on the podcast for uh, Watchmen. And uh, I was yeah. listening to him, and I don't remember if he was quoting somebody or this is something he came up with, but he said, uh, don't just write what you know, or don't only write what you know, but write what you feel. And uh, that's a way to be just honest with what you're creating. And I think that is on display here. 
now I, can, I feel kind of bad for saying like who hurt you because like maybe she you know if you if you're saying that like i hope she didn't go through any of the traumas yeah. that, that well she, I, she, about she appears to be happily married with two children um i was okay. reading like the, the, at the very end she has acknowledgments where she's like thanking her you know wonderful husband and how he like gave her all these insights because she was like asking him like really personal questions about what it's like to be a man and all this stuff so right apparently that that helped a lot with the you know writing writing male characters so um I, I will give her the benefit of the doubt and say it's all all imagined, but you know there's kernels of truth in there. It's just like it's impossible for us to know what they are, and maybe that's the best way to go about it. So before we get into, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the writing of this novel and some quotes she has about it. But I want to start by reading the opening to this book because one of the other things that this retreat we talked about a lot was this is the Rainforest Writers Retreat, by the way, uh, run by Patrick Swinson. And he went virtually just yes, to address yes, that, that. Thank you. Yes. It was a virtual this year. I do try and go every year in person. This is like one of my favorite things. But one of the things we talked about was openings and endings. And this is something that I think about a lot. And I, I feel like this is an area that I really want to address in my writing. And um, talking about how openings have to like hook you, but they also have to be, you know, really important uh, ways to sort of encapsulate the story. And they sh- a really good ending can also like resonate back to the opening often um there's no rule that says they have to obviously but um i just want to read this opening and then like knowing what you know james having read the whole book kind of looking at what what is just in these uh opening couple paragraphs and and i do want to say real quick uh i i do think that when we're going to get to the film, but I do think that the film opens and closes in a similar way. I remember being that being very distinct and mm. thinking like, I think this is speci- I think this is Gillian Flynn's words in the film. We're going to we're going to talk about it, but she wrote the film. I don't know if you know that she is the screenwriter of the film. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we're yeah. going to talk about an adaptation that's probably going to be like very close. Um, we're we're going to have that. Oh, I, I should also uh, you mentioned how you saw the film and didn't really remember a lot of it. I also saw the film. I think I saw it when it came out. So that would have been 2014. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I haven't seen it since. Um, so while I did remember some of it, a lot of this was lost through the haze of time and my bad memory. So <laughs> uh, a lot of this was still felt fresh and new to me. You know, I did know a little bit, but um, that's also one of the reasons why we chose to cover this in one week. Um, I think this book would have really lent itself to like a two week coverage, but that would have been best if we had never seen a movie for it. You know what I mean? But because we had already yeah. seen the movie, I think we both kind of felt like just knock it out in one week because, you know, I don't know. I, maybe, you know, maybe it would have been better that way, but <laughs> we're doing it this way. Um, <laughs> so hopefully that works. Anyway, here's the opening to Gone Girl. This is uh, Nick Dunn, The Day Of. When I think of my wife, I always think of her head. The shape of it to begin with. The very first time I saw her, it was the back of her head I saw. And there was something lovely about it. The angles of it, like a shiny, hard corn kernel or a riverbed fossil. She had what the Victorians would call a finely shaped head. You could imagine the skull quite easily. I'd know her head anywhere. In what's inside it, I think of that too. Her mind, her brain, all those coils... And her thoughts shuttling through those coils like fast, frantic centipedes. Like a child, I picture opening her skull, unspooling her brain and sifting through it, trying to catch and pin down her thoughts. What are you thinking, Amy? The question I've asked most often during our marriage, if not out loud, if not to the person who could answer. I suppose these questions storm cloud over every marriage. 
What are you thinking? How are you feeling? Who are you? What have we done to each other? What will we do? So having read the book, looking back at that opening paragraph, I think is or the opening couple of paragraphs is pretty incredible in, in how it really does. Like the, the ending resonates with that. It really sets you up for like what you're about to get into, right? Like we're going to explore these thoughts and the inside workings of Amy's mind um, in, in all of its all of its weird passageways. Uh, I think is also very important. So I, I just I just love those opening paragraphs. Yeah, amazing. And and then it's called not only is it a callback at the end, is it a callback to this, but there are also like references throughout. So yeah. like uh, you know, Nick does find her I think he you know, he finds her multiple times like by the back of her head or something like that within flashbacks. And mm-hmm. um I think of the flashbacks did a lot to like I, I love like a disjointed narrative, right? Like something that's like jumps all over the place a little bit. And this does because we keep jumping into those flashbacks. It does a lot to build without spoiling anything, sort of resentment that's like sl- slowly creeping in. Mm-hmm. And what goes on with the skull and for spoiler reasons, I'm not going to say anything else, but like things that happen or seem to have happened <laughs> throughout the novel and how it calls back to, to, to sort of this first paragraph. I guess we should set up a little bit of like what, the premise is um, so essentially this is the premise of the of the book is that Amy Dunn, Nick Dunn's wife, has gone missing and we are about to, to get a, uh, a collection of two narratives. One is the diaries of Amy recounting them meeting each other. And then one is like Nick in the days following her disappearance. And it is set up like a sort of uh, recognizable whodunit, like what happened here mystery. Um, and that's where it begins. And then it just goes to like awesome, unexpected places, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So if that sounds good to you, uh, I think it's clear that we both highly recommend this novel. Um, let's talk a little bit about the writing of it. Now, in the past, we talked about one uh, one quote in particular that I want to revisit in Sharp Objects. And this was uh, Flynn talking about writing women um, because some critics have accused her of being a misogynist. Um, and this was sort of why she talks, what she talks about why she considers herself a feminist. And she says, one thing that really frustrates me is this idea that women are innately good, innately nurturing, Flynn also said people will dismiss, quote, trampy, vampy, bitchy types, but there's still a big pushback against the idea that women can be just pragmatically evil, bad, selfish. In 2015, Flynn explained her decision to, to write cruel female characters, saying, quote, I've grown quite weary of the spunky heroines, brave rape victims, soul-searching fashionistas that stock so many books. I particularly mourn the lack of female villains, good, potent female villains. So I think that's fascinating to, to consider. Just it is like a career sort of. It seems to me like this is permeating her writing, um, which I think yeah. is, is really fascinating. Well, and I do th- like I tend to agree, you know, for what it's worth. I think like to to not write a character like this because it's seen i i think it to, it's kind of misogynistic to think that you can't write women like this in my right. opinion like it would be to say that they are specifically something that we've deemed they are you know what i mean yeah. which <laughs> like, full caveats we're not necessarily 
the right people to speak on this right. but which is why i said for what it's worth yeah <laughs> for what it's for what it's worth which may be very little to you listener that's, exactly. that's fair <laughs> um but no i mean i tend to agree with you too like ultimately if you're if you're labeling women as only capable of inher- inhabiting certain roles in a book you're you're putting them in boxes that is an innately like yeah, it's misogynistic. It's it's not perceiving them as fully realized people. And so it's it's not ultimately good. Even if like some people might think they're trying to sort of like protect women by doing that, that in and of itself is kind of a problematic way to look at it. I don't know. Smarter yeah. people than me could could probably break this down better, <laughs> but <laughs> that's my that's my thoughts on it. Um so let's talk about Gone Girl though. Flynn said that she was inspired to write this novel by the disappearance of Californian Lacey Peterson in late 2002. Um, I don't know much about the Lacey Peterson story. I skimmed over a little bit of it, which is surprising because I actually do uh, read and, and listen to a lot of true crime stuff. Um, but I hadn't really heard a lot about this. I, the name sounds familiar. Like maybe I heard about it in the news back in like 2002, but I wasn't super familiar with the story. But anyway, apparently that inspired sort of the setup of this book. Um, she also said that portraying her principal characters as out of work writers. Um, she made use of her own experience being laid off from her job as a writer in, in Enter- Entertainment Weekly, which we talked about last time. If there was going to be something I pointed to that felt like something that Gillian was pulling from in her own life, it was like being in writing circles in New York, potentially, yeah. or like writing for, you know, entertainment. That felt very like, I mean, a writer writing about a writer, typically, <laughs> they're pulling from some sort of experience. Have we ever encountered that before with uh, one Mr. Once Stephen King? <laughs> twice, yeah, <laughs> or maybe. Or a few others, I'm sure. Uh, writers love to write about writers. Uh, about the book, she said, quote, I liked the idea of a marriage told as a he said, she said story and told by two narrators who were perhaps not to be trusted. Flynn has also described marriage as, quote, the ultimate mystery. Uh, now, you are not married. Um, I am. And uh, I think pe- people who are married are going to find uh, this particularly interesting because there I mean, there's just a lot. It can make you like scared of marriage and be like i don't know if i should get married to people it can make and i think like honestly it's like it's a cautionary tale about especially getting married for the wrong reasons um and how really terrible a decision that will always end up being um and uh, i think she does a great job of laying out a lot of the ways that it can go horribly horrifically wrong don't rush into things is is sort of like what what i've taken from everything uh you know really really know the person but um I remember when this movie came out, people were like, don't go see it with your significant other. And like, I'm like, what kind of relationship are you in that you can't (laughs) see a film with someone and like realize that like it's a story being told and it doesn't have to be your life. It is. It is the anti love story. Like in, in many ways, it is, you know, the polar opposite to even like scott pilgrim that we covered last week um i made the joke at the end of the episode about how just how dramatically different this book was. And uh, Yeah. yeah. It, it really but is. like I, I don't know <laughs> to me to me it's like that's a red flag if you don't want to see it with your sure. significant other yeah like, like what would, are you worried about yeah I, I agree marriage and society and the pressures that people feel from it i think uh yeah it can definitely lead to some some of these things mm-hmm. but just you know maybe uh if you're not happy in your relationship and you can't go see a movie together that's a reason to think is this the right relationship for me i don't know that's yeah. just i don't know no i agree with you you should, you know, you got to be able to weather watching a film together. Otherwise, you know, what are we talking about? Um, we're starting to dance along some uh, some spoilers here. But I, so if you're really, really a spoiler phobe, check out. But this is this is very light. But I, I wanted to give this this little bit. So Flynn has written an autobiographical essay that was titled, quote, I was not a nice little girl. 
and in it she invites readers to believe that she took inspiration for Amy Dunn from her own interior monologue. In that essay, Flynn confesses to sadistic childhood impulses like, quote, stunning ants and feeding them to spiders. A favorite indoor game called, quote, Mean Aunt Rosie followed Flynn to cast herself as a witchy caregiver who exercised malevolent influences over her cousins. The same essay argues that women fail to acknowledge their own violent impulses and incorporate them into their personal narratives, though men tend to cherish stories of their childhood meanness. So I'm actually, I want to track down this essay because I'm fascinated. Maybe between now and next time, I'll, I'll see if I can find it. Um, I don't know if it's going to be behind a paywall or not, but we'll see. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Um, one thing that stands out to me is like, you know, I don't know what it says about me if I am that sadistic, but like making bugs fight isn't, it's not that sadistic, right? Like, I mean, it means you're a serial that, right? killer, so <laughs> just admitted that on a podcast. <laughs> not animals, just insects. Insects. I remember having like, like I remember like catching like little lizards and stuff, yeah. and like ca- trying to get bugs for the lizard seeds. Yeah, stuff. I so mean, I like, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily proud of it, but I definitely remember like taking a magnifying glass to an ant or something, you know, back in the yeah. day. It's like a science experiment at that point, and I, I was a kid. I didn't empathize with an ant. Um, I would have difficulty yeah. doing that now, to be fair. <laughs> I've seen the ants film and yet. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, anyway, uh, I just thought that was interesting, right? Like she obviously has given a lot of thought about um, how women are portrayed and has something she wants to say. And, and you know, I commend her for that. Um, so Gone Girl was number one on the New York Times hardcover fiction bestseller list for eight weeks. It was also 26 weeks on the National Public Radio's hardcover fiction bestseller list. Culture writer Dave Itzgoff wrote that the novel was accepting the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, the biggest literary phenomenon of 2012. By the end of its first year in publication, Gone Girl had sold over 2 million copies in print and digital editions, according to the book's publisher. Massive best-selling hit of a book. Um, yeah. and, and a kind of a cultural sensation. And that, that reminds me, like, I think this book is, you know, you hear that cliche, people say, oh, I want to write the next great American novel. Yeah. Um, I feel like this is kind of a great American novel because it is like also quintessentially American. It is, it is all about this, this period in time, this like uh, great recession, 2008, like after the, you know, the housing bubble burst. And there is like a, the, there's like a, the destitution of like people losing their jobs and losing their homes and financial insecurity, like that permeates everything. And then we're talking about like, uh, you know, a married couple, you know, and their struggles. So it's, it's like, it's very American, you know, and it's, it's set in Missouri. So you get this kind of small town, but it's also set against New York city, the big city life. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think it it kind of fits that. And, and even though it's like an incredibly dark, emotionally devastating novel it also kind of fits that that mold i think so as well yeah i think it's fitting for where you know the progression of america this is you know along that path i think this could be considered a great american novel for sure it was also like the turning of the turning of like social media becoming so important Mm -hmm. and the turning of like the internet and what the internet did to print uh oh yeah and and a lot of that kind of stuff too so like comments being made on that which you know it's it, what's weird to think about is this is kind of a period piece now you yeah. know like this yeah. is kind of a but you know it, it's also a lot of, about like society and how people were judged in uh sort of um 
the jury of public opinion and how that just affects everything. And it'll even affect the outcomes of cases sometimes and, and how that has yeah. to be managed. Like, you know, the optics of everything is, it's just mm-hmm. all, it's all brilliantly done. Um, and you know, I got a lot more to say, but let's get into some plot synopsis. We're going to, uh, let's talk about what happens in part one of this novel. So we will, we will be spoiling each section as we go. So fair warning. All right. Part one, the narrative alternates between the point of view of Nick and Amy Dunn. Nick's narration begins shortly after arriving home on his wedding anniversary to find Amy is missing. There are signs of a struggle. Amy's narration comes in the form of her diaries and follow the early stages of their relationship. The diary entries describe how she met Nick in New York City, where they both worked as writers. After two years of dating, they married. In 2009, both lost their jobs following the Great Recession. Amy's parents, also facing financial issues, asked Amy for assistance. The couple relocated to Nick's hometown in North Carthage, Missouri, to take care of Nick's sick mother. With permission, Nick used what remained of Amy's trust fund to open a bar with his twin sister, Go, and also works as a college lecturer. Amy describes how she hates being a housewife and resents Nick for making her move. Her diary comes to portray Nick as an aggressive, moody, idle, and threatening husband and indicates that she fears for her life. In Nick's narrative, he views Amy as needlessly difficult, antisocial, controlling perfectionist, and an unwelcome obligation, but is concerned about her disappearance. Nick becomes a suspect in the investigation and faces intense media scrutiny, exacerbated by his lack of obvious emotion and apparent flippant attitude. Investigators discover that Amy was pregnant. Nick has serious credit card debt, which he claims to have been unaware of, and Amy's life insurance was recently increased by Nick, which he claims was her idea. It becomes apparent to Nick that his wife had secrets from him. Okay, so part one, uh, we get these two different uh, narratives, and this is this was a part where I was taken by the structure of this novel. I was enamored with it. Like I love the idea of a you know, chronologically, we have Nick's story, which begins at the disappearance and then goes to the days following. And then we have Amy's story, which is beginning way before and sort of moving up towards the disappearance um, and filling in some of the gaps. But both are clearly um, being told from very specific points of view. I think at this point, we can tell that, like, we're getting both sides of it here. And we mm-hmm. see how, like, a lot of the stuff that Nick is saying doesn't seem to line up with the stuff that Amy's saying. And uh, I think, you know, the 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 reader is going to believe that Nick is looking more and more guilty here. Um, Gillian Flynn does a masterful job of, like, planting little things in here where he, like, has images of seeing her with her head bashed in. And he, you know, he he clearly is hiding something from the reader. Like, he's clearly, like, not explaining certain things that he would have full knowledge of. And he's so he's, like, lying to us, which makes us doubt him and start to question, like, did he actually do it? He, he sucks, right? Like, Nick sucks. You're, <laughs> you're, you're buying into the fact that, like, oh, man, like, what a what a brutal thing to happen. Like, this, this like, perfect wife was was abducted seemingly or something's happened to her. And then, like, you're more and more things keep happening where you're like, are we getting this perspective of the murderer? Mm-hmm. Are we getting like, cause the husband always does it. Yeah. It's always the husband, yeah. um, which of course. And then like, even knowing some details of the story, like having seen the movie, like I'm, 
I'm like, did uh, like re- having to readjust what I'm, I'm well, like, did did Nick do it? I'm trying to remember. What did, was he yeah, involved? It, we've we've seen so many versions of stories where like somebody did it and then they like dissociate from themselves and they think they didn't do it, but maybe they actually did. And so like, yeah, you're kind of expecting like, are we going to get some sort of reveal that he secretly did kill her and, and all this stuff, you know, because he is being secretive. And, and honestly, like both parties are kind of unreliable because, well, I guess at this point he's unreliable and it seems like right. it's more, she seems more reliable right at this point. Yeah. Because, and, and I like what you said about the, the format because really he seems unreliable. And then the, the, the diary feels like gospel because yep. it was written so far, so long ago. And it's told to us that it's a diary, like, right? right? Like the idea is that a diary is written for no one else to read. We sort of hold diaries synchrosect as like, they are, people's inner lives written only for themselves and so if we're somehow reading a diary it is very specifically the authentic experience of somebody um and so we're set up to just buy everything that it says which is just a brilliant move i I absolutely love it um let's talk about some of the some of the major players that we get introduced to here um we get amy dunn's parents uh they are really something else they are they are pieces of work they they are hilarious to me i, I was laughing <laughs> so much <laughs> yeah i mean they, they're, they're these like they wrote these books about their daughter and got famous and rich off of them and um they're both child psychologists and yeah. like the like i can't even imagine like the way she describes it is just like like it's going to damage you so much to have these parents and how they were right they would write this version of their daughter that was perfect and like publish it and like and like compare her to it and hold her to that standard um it, it's amazing to me that some that people who are like child psychologists would not realize what they're doing to their own child by doing this but it's believable in my opinion what was going on was with the success of the novels they were in denial of what it would do to a child because yeah. it was successful and they were making money at it and later we see they're sort of irresponsible i mean maybe not irresponsible but they fall on yeah. hard times and i mean yeah i mean they they're affected by the 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 bubble right. but then also the their book sales you know plummet um right and gillian flynn is laying some groundwork here and we don't even realize she's doing it um but she's laying groundwork for a emotionally abusive childhood for Amy that is going to form her into the person she becomes. And that person is not okay. <laughs> um, and we, you know, we don't see that because we, we hear about this through Amy's perspective in her diary. Um, but, you know, we, we learned that that's unreliable. Um, and so even though I think a lot of it is true, it's actually maybe not even given to us with the full weight of just how bad it was. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it does a really good job of setting the groundwork for like, you know, she was fucked up by her, by her parents growing up. I think it's clear, yeah. right. which doesn't, ex- doesn't excuse everything. Cause a lot of people do get fucked up by their parents and then are fine. But you know, so often you look at, at people who do horrific things. They often are, they often come from broken homes where they were abused or different things like that. I listen to enough true crime stuff that goes back into the past of different like serial killers. It's pretty consistent yeah 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 um i feel like let's talk let's talk about some more characters so uh they're all incredibly well done i really like the twin relationship with nick and his sister go um Mm -hmm. i i think it's really smart to have go be a woman and to have nick 
he has this like kind of weird relationship with her that is a little bit off-putting, I think, to most people at first, where they ha- they're like really sort close. of affectionate and close with each other, and they do the like, dirty jokes with each other, and it's kind of like off-putting, I think. But but again, I think it's kind of a real thing. Yeah, like, it's kind of don't... endearing too, right? And yeah. and to me, it's sh- it it's good to see Nick not have a really toxic relationship with at least one woman. Like it seems to be fairly healthy, although we do get the implication that he's hiding something from her. But still, like, I think it helps um, because she, uh, Gillian Flynn also has to walk the line with Nick, right? Like, she wants us to suspect him, but she we, we can't out and out hate him, right? Like, you know, because I don't know, like, you have to empathize with him enough to to where when part two comes around, you're going to be able to make kind of a flip a little yeah. bit. Well, he's a very viable everyman uh american everyman right like specifically like midwest yeah american. i guess and it's interesting because i love one of the major themes i was picking up on throughout this book is the lies that we tell ourselves the lies that we tell other people especially in long-term relationships and marriages um about how like the true self starts to come out over time and um how you kind of put on an act before and then and, 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 you know this is this is all stuff that's baked into it but also the lies we tell ourselves about the people we want to be with and uh amy is as much as she is like seems to be so self-aware in her diary making fun of all these other women and how they you know look at, at look at men she she falls in love with the ideal of what she wants nick to be not what he actually is um, and I think that's so true. Like so many people do that and she falls into that trap too, because like she has this, this almost like she, she has this really awesome cool girl rant that she goes on. Uh, and we're about to get to in part two, um, where she's like, you know, just blisteringly making fun of these cool girls who are, you know, like being the fantasy for these guys. But what's ironic is that she kind of has that exact ideal that she wants from Nick. She wants him to be like a feminist, but also like this like super machismo guy and like super capable in some ways and emotionally available in others, but also not too, not too emotional. And like if you start to box in all the like parameters for her perfect man that she thinks he is, you realize that no actual person can fit into that either. Um, It's like it's almost his her own version of the cool girl. Uh, yeah, a label, I guess. But, and, but I mean, for the, a guy. the cool girl, the cool girl thing cracks me up too because it's like she's setting herself up as saying like yeah. she's she's showing her true self. Eventually, she's saying like you know I was a certain person when me and Nick first started dating, and now you know time has passed and I'm not going to be that person because that was just basically to start to to you know to get him yeah. in the first place. Um, she's not so, above it. She even talks about how she she's played the cool girl many times, and, and it's and interesting when she's yeah because she she talks about how she she is like a chameleon here in part two, and uh, you know her personality can change, and you're immediately like wait what? <laughs> Isn't that the thing you were railing against a minute ago? Like being inauthentic. Exactly. Yeah, and um, I can't remember the specific name that they have, but it's like the men who are like. Um, at the beck and call of their of their wives or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And uh, I but love that's what that. she wants, right? Exactly. Like, she she yeah. is so she 
consistently does that like she makes fun of it she talks about how like silly it is and oh i don't have to be worshipped and all this stuff but like that's exactly what she wants ultimately at the end that's what she wanted <laughs> yeah. yeah and and she wants to completely control him to like they were making fun of people who were controlling their husbands and she wants to fully control her husband yeah she she so often is becoming the thing that she's making fun of and it, it's so interesting because this first part diary um is is a lie which we're about to get to um, but we don't know how much of it is a lie. And she says that some of it is true. And so, and she, it's never like really broken down and litigated. Like she, certain things here or there, but like for the most part, I think it's just up to the reader to try and figure out what of that beginning is true and what of it is a complete fabrication. And I do assume like my own personal take on it was that I do assume some of it, like a majority of the good things, because t that's how relationships go. The, the beginning is is great. Everything's yeah. great in the beginning. But it's, it's interesting, though, because she wrote it where, you know, we're about to get to. She wrote it later and she went back and was like, what was I thinking seven years ago? And like and like recreated it. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah. and from her like current mindset. So she that was crafting the water's it a bit. very deliberately yeah. to set up a certain narrative. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's really fascinating. So let's get to part two since we're referencing it a lot. We're about to get the big the big reveal, right? So let's just get into it. Part two. It is revealed that the main characters are both unreliable narrators. Nick has omitted that he is cheating on his wife with Andy, his former student, and intended to divorce Amy. He hid, his, he hid this from investigators to avoid suspicion. Amy's narration shifts to the present day, revealing that she is alive and staged her own disappearance to go into hiding. After discovering Nick's affair, she became angry at his disregard for her and planned extensively for a year to fake her death and frame Nick as revenge for wasting her life. Her pregnancy, years of diary entries, and other evidence were fabricated in order to incriminate Nick. Nick becomes aware of Amy's plan based on vague clues that she has left for him under the guise of their traditional anniversary treasure hunt. He is led to Go's woodshed, where he discovers exorbitant purchases Amy made with credit cards in his name to further incriminate him. The shed also contains Amy's anniversary gift of Punch and Judy puppets, one missing a handle. Let's actually stop for a minute here. I have a little bit more for part two summary, but I want to get on uh, get in on the reveals first before we get into like everything else that happens yeah. in this part. Uh, so yeah, the reveals. I think the reveal of the uh, of the Andy. Uh, infidelity is actually a little bit into part one, but I think the summary put lumps mm -hmm. it in the top of part two. But anyway, the big reveal that happens for sure at the start of part two is that Amy's alive and right. that uh, she completely fabricated the di the diary. <laughs> I remember losing my mind in the because my first experience was the movie theater, seeing yeah. it in the movie theater, and I just remember losing my mind, being like oh my God, it's all fabricated. And then the way that it's doled out to us for the rest of the story is so... I mean, it's, it's so meticulous mm -hmm. it's so detail oriented and well plotted it's it's amazing yeah incredible and and you know the structure continues to be amazing i love the way it swaps between the two of them and, and it situates you in time the way that she is like gleefully like uh we are we are her we are her gullible victims in this yeah we are the we are the general public we are the viewers of the, you know, the Nancy Grace show or whatever the name of the stand-in character they have on here. We are we are like at her, she is manipulating us into doing the very thing she wants the general public in this book to do, and that's hate Nick. And she knows exactly how to do it. I think I was, even knowing the story, I was on her side longer than I'm willing to admit, you yeah. know? I was still like, kind of like, ah, it's kind of justified for a while, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Up to a certain point. Well, and that's because it kind of is. And, and yeah. one thing that I that I also loved was uh, 
when Nick comes clean about his infidelity, it, it, it's actually like the most cliche, like cheating oh, on yeah. a wife you could have, right? Like he, she's way younger. She's a student. You know, she, she only knows him in like a certain way and she sees him as this great writer and he appeals to his, to his, to his um, ego. And one of the things that I, I kept thinking about was at, at this, uh, at this retreat I went to, um, uh, Tobias Buckel gave a, uh, presentation about, um, narrative cliches. And one of the things he talked about, and many, many things, it was great, but one of the things he talked about was one thing you can do to make a cliche work is to just fully lean into it and explore it in, a, in such a way that nobody could look at it and say that you are faking it or you're just borrowing this like common thing and placing it in your book that you, you, you fully explore it in a way that actually makes it seem fresh. And she does it here. Like I, I bought this i bought why he did it i bought the things that he wasn't getting from amy and their marriage and why he would turn to her um and and i love how he was also like a self-aware enough to go like i know you're gonna hate me i know that she's a cliche and like all these reasons but here's why you know and like you know their relationship had gone cold you know he wasn't getting any of the emotional or physical or anything he wasn't getting anything out of it that he needed and he ends up turning to her and he talks about all the reasons why and you still end up like hating him for it, but I thought it was presented in a way that made the cliche work and made us at least empathize with the character enough to understand why he might do it. Yeah, I mean, I can see that for sure. Some some of the time I think cliche is laziness. Right? Right. So it's like, oh, I'm going to lean on this cliche because it's the easy way to go. I don't have to work hard for it. And it's, it's like low hanging fruit, right? Like you just reach out. You're like, you're like, what do I need? And you grab this fruit and it happens to be something you've heard a million times. Exactly. And the audience is on board with it. They know that they can follow along with it very easily. But like we said, there's nothing lazy about the way that Gillian Flynn does it in this story. Right. Um, so it works. The other thing is, uh, I don't know what character says it. I want to say that it's that it's Amy, but I can't remember if it's in a diary or like a later chapter. But she basically talks about how like he must have known that like he was faking himself to Andy. So ultimately, like he's not going to when she when she understands and knows the real you, she's not going to be interested in you anymore because like that's not exciting. Yeah. to her. What's exciting is the best foot forward that you've put. And like there's nothing that's ever going to come of this. Um, and so to do that in this relationship and like, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it's clear at the end of the story that both parties are in the wrong, but one maybe a little more than the other uh, yeah. because of the extreme, like the extremes yeah. that are taken. There are no, to... there are no heroes here. Let's just say. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, but it is funny to think like it, it is irrational, but he was reaching out for that, that um, companion. He was reaching mm -hmm. out for someone because as we learn, there was something sort of manipulative going on with Amy at this point. Like, there's a reason why she was like cold and, and distant and all of this, because she felt that that's how their relationship had, you know, played out. And that's where it, what it had become. So she she's already like putting putting all this into into effect, basically, I assume. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It, the, the timeline isn't exactly clear, clear to me because she finds out about Andy really, really early on. I think the first time, right? Like she sees it happen. So um, she obviously is going to turn cold after that. And she starts plotting this for over the course of like a year. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously they had had problems before that. And that's, that's, but we're told about it from two unreliable sources. So it's right. impossible to know like what is actually true. And both sides paint themselves 
as not being that bad and it mostly being the other person's fault, right? Um, which is so true to, I don't know, so many things. <laughs> uh, and I like what you were talking about with um, how Nick, he is, he is putting out this version of himself, this lie, and it's the lie that Amy fell in love with. Yeah, she she points out and others point out like as soon as that lie becomes the truth, you're going to get bored or you're going to you're not going to be getting what you want anymore. You're going to feel like, you, you know, you're going to feel like judged and you're going to you're going to get restless. Um, and that's so true for so, this guy, this kind of guy. I, I don't yeah. know. And I mean, that's ultimately why these two characters never should have been together. You know? Yeah. I mean, because clearly, the, but... the pattern has been realized. Or maybe maybe they're perfect for each other. Uh, yeah. I think there's a debate that we had there, too. <laughs> um, so we also got to talk about the pregnancy thing. Um, finding out that she faked her pregnancy is like a bombshell to me. Um, the, the way she like stole this neighbor's urine <laughs> and used it because she's pregnant to, to pass a pregnancy test. And, and honestly, it's just the tip of the iceberg, and it starts to lay out the diabolical way that she, like, systematically framed her husband in an inescapable way, honestly. Like, and it, it's terrifying. It's like the access she has, the trust she has, her ability to dismantle his life piece by piece is incredible and she fully does it here like and 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 it's it is it's diabolical and it puts her up there to me with like other incredible like villainous minds that i've gotten in fiction like we, we read silence of the lambs and i think about hannibal lecter and i think she is a lot more human in many ways than hannibal lecter is but like just as far as like a, a absolutely incredible villainous mind um it's right on it's up there like it's it's she is incredibly brilliant and devastating and, and, you know, doesn't give a shit. <laughs> like it's amazing how much she, she can find every little way in which she can just punish him. And I think at one yeah. point it said old Testament and that, that's how it feels like she is getting incredibly brutal in her punishment of Nick. <laughs> yeah. And, and from every angle, like you said, inescapable, yeah. like if this, you know, if this falls through, well, that's not that big of a deal. Cause there's this other thing that's going to yeah. be like a, like just an avalanche on him. It's almost so, magical, but she's thought of it. It's like Sherlock or something. Like she's thought right. of everything that you could possibly exactly. think of. Yeah. It, of course, like no, I mean, I'm not going to say no one could ever do this, but cause clearly a, Gillian came up with this stuff, but you know, it's, it's like, it's supernatural in the, in the narrative. Well, you, you, uh, you know, I, I will, I will give away a secret. Like as a writer, you kind of cheat because you're, you're God, you control it all. So right. you, you can just make it pulling work. all the strings. Yeah. <laughs> now you have to, you have to fool the reader into believing it, but ultimately it's a magic trick, right? Like, of course. Right. Okay. So let's move on to the rest of this part two section. So Amy's plan to observe the investigation through the news is foiled when she is robbed at a motel she's hiding in. Desperate, she seeks help from her wealthy ex-boyfriend, Desi Collins, whom she had a manipulative relationship with in her youth. Desi, still enamored, hides her in his lake house, but becomes possessive and controlling, making Amy feel trapped. Nick and his new lawyer, Tanner Bolt, work to change public perception of Nick through an interview with a popular talk show host, during which Nick pretends to be apologetic for his infidelity and failing as a husband. He is well-received, but the police have discovered the woodshed, which also contains violent porn videos and Amy's diary, which chronicles abuse from Nick. The police find the missing handle from the puppets bearing Amy's blood. Nick is arrested. At Desi's house, Amy sees the TV interview and is impressed by Nick's performance of a perfect husband and is convinced that the two of them uniquely understand and are matched to the other. 
She mutilates her own body so that it appears Desi has been holding her captive before seducing and murdering him. Okay, so someone does die in this book, and that's Desi. Uh, as he gets taken out by uh, by Amy here, uh, just a brutal way. But um, I, I love that, that bit of the summary because I absolutely agree with that. I love that she, she sees him lying on TV, and we know it's a lie. Nick knows it's a lie, but everybody else, society looks at it and thinks it's true. And she like kind of falls back in love with him because she sees this lie and she's like, yes, that's the lie I want. So now I'm going to come back to him, um, which is another crazy turn that I did not expect. You know, it's like you, you do not think that's going to happen, that these two are going to somehow get back together. Uh, yeah, but incredible turn there. Yeah, and and with all of that going on, Nick is like, he, I mean, he up to this point he had like fallen apart, like his entire life had fallen apart. He was full on the suspect. They were gonna nail him, yeah. with with all of it. And uh, she comes back and saves him, and then uses that against him eventually, and says yeah. like, "You were well, fucked without me." Like, we're about to get to that. That's in part yeah. three, but let's but in part two. Um, I, I I actually really love how the structure shifts to this um contest right like it, it's nick trying to get the upper hand of amy and then from her like remote <laughs> place where she's watching it all unfold in the past plan she's laid like springing little things on him and and things happening unexpectedly and like him trying to stay ahead of public perception and i, I thought it was again like a fun setup and, and a fun narrative to follow and and you think it's like which who's gonna get the better of who who's gonna get arrested like it feels like that's where it's headed you know one person's going to win Nick is going to Nick is going to absolve himself and and you know he's we're going to find that and it's he's going to make sure everyone knows what she did and that's not where we're headed either right so it's another uh faint in a way that I think is is masterfully you know performed here the way that we're we're starting to I'm starting to feel bad for him at this point in the story right like I like he fucked up and he shouldn't have done what he did but like like just just like empathizing with a person who clearly he didn't commit the murder like right, we're, yeah. we're sure of that at this point and he's, and so, he's potentially going to face the death sentence <laughs> right? right so yeah it, I, clearly this is a little bit too far yeah and it's so inescapable like we've talked about it's just like sometimes people get caught in cases that they didn't do and then convicted of them and and like that's something that happens within the justice system and it's like you know mm-hmm. not a perfect system uh, but used really effectively by Gillian to be like, you know, he's at his complete lowest. So for her to come back is his only out. Yeah. I mean, just, it, just the idea of the woodshed and how she how she crafted that and, you know, fills it with all these purchases that seem like it's going to be this like great man cave for him. And and then fills it with this like extremely violent porn to make him seem like this like violent guy. And I don't know, it just. It's so well done. Um, and and again, just like she perfectly knows what to do to, to turn everyone against him, to turn the police against him, to turn public opinion against him. Something that, that I actually feel like we haven't talked enough about, too, is the the whole like we talked a little bit about Amazing Amy or Amy, like the character that her parents are writing. Yeah. But uh, this idea that like she had become the person she is because of the, the expectations based on these this character. 
Um, and the public, the way that the public is also reacting to that because they're like seeing her as the character that the, her parents created and they're so sympathetic to, right. to her cause. And they're, they're just the way that like the family kept interacting and the, the conferences kept getting worse and worse. And then, uh, the friend coming out who, who like w- she had framed as like, this is my best friend. And she spent time with these people. Yeah. And you know, you, she told her that and yeah, which yeah. Was, and it's all lies. It's lies all the way down. It's just like an incredible web. Um, and, and, and lies, like there's so many different kinds of lies. Like you're talking about like the things that like society wants to see people as, even if like people know, people know she's not actually amazing Amy, right? Like they, they see her and know that, um, but they want her to be that. And she wants to, for them to see her that way. So it's this like mutual lie that each side is telling each other. And it's the same way that the marriage can sometimes be, and definitely is in this case where it's like. It's just it, these shared perceptions and roles that people want to fill. And even if you don't fill it completely, you're going to like act like you do. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's incredible and and um, really fascinating. But I love the idea of the true crime aficionado, uh, particularly women, reading this book and seeing Amy as a, an empowerment story. Right. And. In the same way that, like, other problematic male characters are often that way for people. Like, you see, like, Walter White. People, you know, like, even though in Breaking Bad, Walter White is clearly a villain, um, he's also a hero. And he, you know, at least begins that way. And a lot of men identify with that character and find him empowering and think, like, oh, that's so cool, right? Like, I think she she is that way. And one of the reasons that I think she speaks to people so perfectly is... Gillian Flynn knows her audience. She's writing a crime mystery novel. And I I bet there is a huge overlap of crime mystery fans, thriller fans, and true crime fans. And this person is her, her whole getting the whole crime she's doing, she's able to do because of her love of true crime. So right. if you're a woman listening to this, you're like, ooh, I could do this. I know a yeah. lot about crime too. <laughs> and I, who, who do I hate that I could really fuck over if I wanted to? Definitely. It's, it's, it's like a thrill, right? Definitely. I mean, and, and like being someone who doesn't, the only time I consume it. So my, my girlfriend is a, a massive true crime. It's honestly like a huge portion of her, of her entertainment. And yeah, well, well that's the thing is like, <laughs> she you know, gone girl, you man, <laughs> true crime, true crime has been a thing for a long time, but I think it's really come to prominence in like, in the ways that it has now to where it's like everyone's true crime fans. Um, and, but when I was first being exposed to some of the true crime stuff, I'm like, it doesn't this seem like ways that like a serial killer could watch this stuff and use this mm-hmm. to their advantage to then get away with things. And like, you know, it was always explained to me like, no, like it's better to tell these stories so victims can, you know, uh, we can remember their stories and understand what happened so that hopefully it doesn't happen to other people and on and on. I think both, and, I think both things can be true. I, I, and I think it's like what what outweighs the other, but yeah, this is the scary turn, right? This is like taking that and being like the people who can get away with it are the people who consume it constantly, yeah. that consume this sort of but, stuff. But and ultimately, I think you're right on. Like ultimately, like you still would have to be a killer or someone, you know what I mean? Like you still have to be a sociopath to do this, and maybe you would have done it already, but maybe you could just do it better because you've studied this stuff. I don't know, but um. You know what I mean? It doesn't take good people and turn them turn them bad. <laughs> it was a fear of mine that Gillian Flynn like specifically pinpointed and was like, "All right, let's let's go in on that." Yeah, I don't know. I just think it's brilliant. You know, it's like it, it, she knows her readership so well, and um, I think it's one of the reasons why this book did so, so well. One of many, 
but like um i think it was an empowerment i think women read this who are the, who are this kind of reader and go like oh you got to read this because they know people like this right like you got to read this book for this reason and you know i mean best-selling massive novel so um i don't know i think that was a piece of it at least all right so let's get into the final part and then we can kind of just talk about everything part three uh, Amy returns to North Carthage, where Nick is recently out on bond. She fabricates a new story to investigators that she was kidnapped from home and imprisoned by Desi before killing him to escape. Her diary entries were melodramatic, and she is glad to be back with Nick. Nick, Detective Boney, and Go know that she is lying, but have no proof. Nick is forced to return to the married life with Amy as the media storm dies down. Amy begins writing her memoir of the fabricated events, and Nick privately begins an expose of Amy's deceptions. Amy uses Nick's semen, which they saved at a fertility clinic, to inseminate herself and forces him to delete his book by threatening to keep him from their unborn child. Nick complies, dedicating himself to the role of a perfect husband. Ooh, uh, she like a spider, you know, I think she's described as being spider-like to, to him. She, her web closes on Nick here and he can't get out. He's trapped. And, um, but that's what she wants, right? Like she wants, you were saying, you know, early on in the episode, absolute total domination and control of him. The ending is n- never did I see this ending coming when I, you know, when I first consumed this, the, the fact that he's like, this is the ultimate nightmare. It's like, not only, he because he's like constantly like fantasizing about killing her when she finally comes back and that you know that calls back to like the opener skull and you know see inside and like he's like actually thinking that at this point um and then she she gets him with the ultimate hook at this point like there's nothing that he can he can't possibly get out of it she had a trump card ready to go yeah and ultimately it was I'm pregnant with your child. And he's like, how is this possible? And then like the the idea that she saved his semen and then eventually like she used it against him and like he's, he's trapped in the situation. She knows he wanted a kid and it's just like, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. And, um, and, and to protect the kid more than anything. Like, and she, she is so aware throughout of a particular power she has in society. I think that's one of the really fascinating things about this book too. It's like for great, you know, there's, great reason that we always give women the benefit of the doubt, right? Like in these situations and that, you know, the vast majority of cases, you know, there are no false race accusations, for example, like it's in the vast majority, it's very low percentage, but it does still happen sometimes. It's a very low percent, but it it doesn't never happen. And I, you know, I think Gillian Flynn's pointing out that like in the right diabolical mind, it can be used as a weapon because uh, she full on knows how public perception is going to be. And she knows the power of accusing people of certain things and how loaded that is in our society. And if she has no shame and she's willing to just say anything, um, then she knows like exactly what will happen to Nick's life. Um, And, and I also love like we get examples of her doing this to other people throughout her life. Right, like that friend from childhood, that mm-hmm. guy that he goes to talk to who yeah. she accused of date rape, but then like withdrew the charges and just mm-hmm. to like teach him a little lesson and like all these little like brutal things. Um, well, and, and then the, yeah. that guy even mentions like I, you know, uh, Nick's like, why didn't you press charges? And he's like, I just wanted it to be over. Like I just wanted to be free of her. Yeah. And uh, and there's no out for Nick. And yeah. that's the, it's just crazy how the flip is a it is a complete 180 because these are characters that you feel 
you f- like for Nick, I was like, oh, you kind of deserve it for a really long time. But up until the very end, I'm like, oh, wow, like this is this is like completely like now I do feel bad for him in ways, yeah. you know, like he he he's he, he's certainly not blameless, but yeah. he's learned his lesson maybe. But at the same time, yeah. like, I, I don't know, he's he's in he's in this perpetual hell. And, and I wanted to say the, you know, we talked about, I think last week about the happily ever after in romance novels and how that is this like great expectation for that genre. And mm-hmm. this is the, uh, you know, life of agony ever after the, the despair ever after depression ever after, I don't even know, you know, hatred ever after it is the complete opposite of that. And, it's, and I love that. And it's going yeah. on in perpetuity. It feels like, like inescapable. Another layer to that too, is that while he's trapped and staying for the child, he's also living with a murderer like a known he yeah. knows that she mur- like and she's willing to kill someone yeah he keeps thinking about how he cannot turn he's like i cannot turn my back on my wife i love that i love that detail and too, like yeah. imagine he's gonna have to do that forever <laughs> like until she dies or something or, or one forever. of them he can't shut his eyes like he was like he uh, the one of the first night that he stayed he's like i'm gonna go sleep downstairs my immediate reaction was like that's not good enough man you're, <laughs> yeah. you're still gonna get your throat slit while you sleep yeah you know and we talked to before about how she like uh one of the many things she did to frame him was she would come and like press his fingertips on objects to plant fingerprints and shit so like yeah being asleep you're vulnerable uh like how could you sleep it, it's just a living nightmare and that's going to be his and life. i think he even he might even mention like i'm never sleeping again yeah. i think that's a line that he has and it's so crazy too because both of them you know nick to a lesser extent but amy too like they're a- they're able to find something in this fake relationship right like the he even catch he talks about how he catches himself sometimes and has to remind himself of the reality yeah because people get caught up in the lies that they tell themselves and mm-hmm. all all amy cares about is perception like like she wants other people to look at her life and be jealous of her you know amazingly hot you know he's he's gentle when he needs to be you know he's but he's you know manly and like he's all these conflicting things and as long as everybody sees that on the surface and sees him being devoted to her it's okay if he secretly hates her like that. It doesn't matter to yeah. her, which is incredible because that goes, that, it's like the polar opposite of everything we were led to believe at the start of the book. Mm-hmm. The status status is another thing that we, we didn't talk too much about, but like the idea of status within the story. So, so Amy goes from a character that is rich with a rich family living in New York, change of status into living sort of a domestic wife role that she detests and 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 then uh the change in status again to her having nothing no money on the run um and then she's robbed and uh that was actually one of my favorite sections of the story when she's like hanging out at the hotel in like the ozarks or whatever yeah it's really it was a really interesting like class moment right where she like underestimates these people and that's something that Mm -hmm. i i think um if you were to look at another reason why amy is unable to be happy is because she fundamentally looks down on everyday people yeah. as lesser. Well, both being both, lesser both characters are. I kept thinking how pretentious both characters oh, yeah, are for consistently sure. throughout the whole novel. Yeah, but especially Amy. <laughs> right, and and I think she she like completely has no respect for these two people that she meets uh, in the Ozarks and uh, ends up like not even believing that they could possibly get like one up on her and then and then they do and they rob her and that ends up making her have to go to desi but yeah really interesting sequence and it it shows how she is the spoiled rich kid which is what she gets being you know 
they keep labeling the the um, Amy that's on TV as that, and um, I think that really hits home um, with her because she she definitely is. Um, yeah. and, and and I don't know. It's it's again, it, it makes it feel like this like really perfect American novel in a way because it really talks about like how class yeah. classes are here and elites and, and all that stuff. Yeah, another another interesting dynamic was was Desi when he when Desi was sort of her caretaker when he was taking care of her, but also trapping her there and the ways that she saw him and what he represented, although he's well off, like um, he, you know, he has a lot of stuff going for him in life, but he's also like too, he's too easy for her. He's too attainable. And he's also like, yeah, what, why isn't he, what, why isn't he what she wants from Nick? Right. Like I think that's interesting to explore. Well, there's not enough fight in him. This is basically what she says. Yeah. Which later on, she says that Nick has this new spark that she really likes and it's that he fucking hates her now <laughs> it's so crazy so uh, wild. Uh, yeah but no I, I i think that's part of it right but i think there's more too right like i think it's that she wants to be real with somebody and she wants to be seen and one of the reasons she loves this new relationship with nick at the end and I think it's it's um, I think it's shown beautifully in a, in the scenes where they get into the shower together and literally strip naked to confess to each other, mm-hmm. and they bear each other. You know, they bear themselves to each other, and it's the first time maybe ever that they've been truly honest with each other. And she likes that she can finally be truly honest and and fully seen by Nick. And then yet he's still trapped to be with me because Desi is very clear that he considers her like some sort of princess that needs to be kept in a, in a tower and given right. a little garden. And, you know, she has this pink room. And and so he has also got this ideal, idealized version of her that he wants her to be that is not true to what she really is. There's also the oh shit moment when she realizes like Desi isn't what she actually thought. Does she like when he has the 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 flower the ever blooming flowers or whatever yeah that that he's prepared for her she was a ghost shit like he i didn't realize how how much he was obsessed with me yeah and i think that's where the plan actually takes form too because i think she immediately latches onto that and goes i can use that you know like yeah because as soon as that is shown like that's something she can't plant that had to have been there all along and it's definitely creepy yeah. Uh, so she's really good at like finding things and then immediately incorporating them. But I want to talk about also the audacity, <laughs> the audacity of her coming back is another oh, yeah. moment of like that's it's like Walter White again, like, you know, some of the shit that he gets into in later seasons, the audacity of it all, you know, like, you know, standing toe to toe with these kingpins and stuff like that, like the audacity of her walking back in on to her life and like daring the cops to ask her a question that she doesn't have an answer for. Like she, she just is like, I know. Yeah. I have an answer for everything you could possibly ask. And I'm not afraid of you. And anything that you think seems like it's kind of sketchy. I'm going to use my, the fact that I'm a victim in the situation yep. against you. Yeah. Who, you know, you know, who are people going to believe? And, uh, you know, there's, there's all these questions about like, well, why did this happen? Well, you'll just have to ask Nick. So like, she keeps turning, you know, the, the, Whenever there's like ambiguity, she turns it back on Nick, who's who's created, who, you know, he was, you know, he cheated on her. So he's not going to be viewed as as someone who's trustworthy, you know. Right. It, it, I don't know. It's just amazing. And, you know, I think there is some implication of like maybe at some point she'll slip up. And I think that's what Nick's hoping for. But 
the 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 clincher is the child and he calls yeah. off Boney and says, you know, I, I was wrong, you know, I, she's you know, I'm just going to try and make this work now. And yeah, that's uh that's devastating. That's like the final acceptance of his of his living hell that he now is going to be in. Yeah. And his final folly really was the fact that he thought that he could write he could write something, he could write this book that would be her downfall and that she wouldn't have another answer for it. Like yeah, he actually thought he was going to have some, to be able to get something over on her. And ultimately she dropped the ultimate, the ultimate bomb on him. She was just like, boom, well go ahead and delete that book because I'm pregnant for real. Yeah. You know, one thing I didn't ever really buy, I didn't ever really buy that she was going to kill herself. She says that she has yeah. this plan to kill yeah, herself. And then she, and then she, and then she changes her mind. And I was like, Really? I just didn't buy this character would ever do that. Um, I, I'm not saying it's necessarily criticism. Which is probably why she didn't. Too. I can't, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe it's just like, would I buy that maybe she would ha- like have a fantasy that she was going to do this? Sure. But um, just as like a final fuck you to like deliver the body and really seal his fate, I guess. But um, yeah, I like that she didn't really go very far down that line of reasoning because it didn't really make sense to me. Um, I, I kind of thought where we might be going was... Um, that this was going to be a second diary and it was going to be, cause I didn't know if this was like, cause it felt like a diary still, you know, it, it felt, uh, it was written in the same way that her diaries are written. It just was mm-hmm. more truthful. And I was like, mm-hmm. Ooh, is this a second diary where she wants to like take some credit for what she's done? And yet she's going to like falsely say that she's going to die. Cause I honestly didn't really remember exactly <laughs> in the movie. Again, I have a bad memory when it comes to stuff. You like that happened six, seven years ago, apparently. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I-, I was wondering where that was going to go, but it, that's not where it went. And I'm glad that um, I'm glad that it didn't go that route because ultimately, where it ended up going was way more unexpected and way more interesting. Yeah, uh, there is one part where uh, he's talking about how she is his forever antagonist, and we are in one long, frightening climax. Um, and I-, I thought it was very meta. I like that they're both writers, so that they can like make these kind of comparisons. But I also thought it was just interesting from like a you know critical analysis point of view to to think of that how you know she she he is in this forever relationship with his antagonist (laughs) every day and they every day is going to be this horrific climax forever sounds terrifying (laughs) i hope this is my hope that one day when the child is old enough to go out on its own 18 year old 19 year old 20 year old child goes off then he just goes and disappears into the wilderness or something and can have some peace <laughs> you know it's funny you talking about the kid it may, reminded me and in, in the, at the very very end there's an acknowledgments section where she mm-hmm. like thanks a bunch of people and she talks to her husband and one thing i thought was funny is she talks to her son um she, i think she has two children now but she in the book she talks to i think to one of her children in particular and says if you're reading this before 2024 you know, stop and go read something else or, you know, and I assume it's because it's probably 18 or something in 2024. So I, I think it's funny that like, she's telling him, I hope you don't read this. Because like, if you were, if you were like 10 and you read this book that your mom wrote and it was this, geez, yeah, <laughs> yeah for real, you'd be worried, man. Um, I don't know. I just think that's interesting. Right. Like it's, it, it, and, and like that, that's why I give so much credit to her too. Like there, there is a bravery to writing a book like this. Because you're going to open yourself up to like so many things. People are looking at your personal life and um, the people you know. Like imagine like your parents, your husband. Like how are they not going to see themselves in these characters and go like, 
is this how you really think of me? You know what I mean? Like, like that's it, every writer runs into that. A this little is what bit, I'm right? saying. That's why it's interesting, yeah. right? Like, because like this is always a like a worry that you potentially have. And so much of this is like familiar to her life. Like she was a magazine editor. Like she did. She's from Missouri. Um, you know, I don't think her parents wrote children's book, but I don't know. Um, you know what I mean? It's just like so many things where I feel like you could potentially get into, uh, uncomfortable situations with real people, uh, when they read your work, but that's the stuff we sign up for, right? We, we don't, we don't sign up to please our grandparents when we write these books. So <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah, I feel like also once it was a massive success, all questions are, are off, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, it's I like, mean, well, you made plenty of money, so okay, <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to say we have a guest lined up for next week. Fingers crossed it works out. Um, it'll be uh, a really interesting new perspective on this material. We're going to be talking about the film uh, David Fincher, which I think is a filmmaker we have not touched on yet, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I'm a big fan of David Fincher. He's, he's a very meticulous director. And talk, Yeah, I mean, incredible. I'm, I'm excited to talk about him because I'm definitely a big fan. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review. Um, we haven't gotten any on Apple uh, podcasts in a while, and I would love to see those numbers go up. We've been hovering right at 75. Let's get us to 100, right? <laughs> Make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. We also have a book club on Goodreads that you should join because we talk about different books on there and it's cool. If you wanted to support the podcast in, a, in another way, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash ink to film. We have many different tiers, but our $2 tier gets you into our bonus content. We do release it, an episode every month. We're up to like a lot now. 30, 30 something. 30 something. Yeah. Yeah. We just, we just did the Heretic 2. No, Exorcist 2, Heretic. There we go. Something like that. The heretic? I don't know. It was a weird fucking movie. It was bad. Yeah. And we react to that. (laughs) And we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. I'm excited to get into Fincher. Fincher is notoriously a uh, filmmaker who, I think it's been said a million times, but he can do everything on the set. He's sort of a cinematographer, DP, writer. He's everything on set. So he very much has like a strong handle on the things that he's creating. So I'm very excited to get into him. Cool, man. Yeah, I'm excited too. Excited for our guest. Uh, And until next time. Thanks for listening. And I just wanted to get one final word in here just so I can have the last word. That's a reference to the book. (laughs) (laughs) I just felt like I deserved it.